is the final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media, and we will liberate America from these villains once and for all. This is the primal scream of a dying regime. Pray for our enemies, because we're going medieval on these people. You're just not got a free shot on all these networks lying about the people. The people have had a belly full of it. I know you don't like hearing that. I know you try to do everything in the world to stop that, but you're not going to stop it. It's going to happen. And where do people like that go to share the big lie? MAGA media. I wish, in my soul, I wish that any of these people had a conscience. Ask yourself, what is my task and what is my purpose? If that answer is to save my country, this country will be saved. War Room. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bann. I want to play a quick, and we're bringing Don Jr. I'll tell you what, let me ask Don Jr. about the lawfare Let's, I tell you what, let's play, let's play Meet the Press briefly. I want to tee up Don Jr. with the polling about how bad it is. Let's go ahead and hit it. Let's just start with the bottom line. When you ask folks, hey, if it's the general election and it's Trump versus Biden in our poll, Donald Trump now leads Joe Biden by five points. Compare that to the last time we polled back in November. Trump was ahead then, but it was only by two points. It's even more significant when you look at it this way. Over time, we have been testing for five years now, going back to 2019, a Biden-Trump matchup. Remember, 2019, 2020, Joe Biden led. He led big in every single one of our polls. For the first time in November, Donald Trump pulled ahead in our poll, and now at five points, this is the biggest lead NBC has ever had in 16 polls for Donald Trump over Joe Biden. And of course, undergirding all of this is this question of, he is the incumbent, Joe Biden. We ask voters, what do you think of the job he's doing? And look at that, Kristen, 37% approve, and now 60% disapprove. And we should say that is the lowest approval rating since former President George W. Bush's second term. Yeah, and it's put that in further context, too. Bush in his second term wasn't running for re-election. Here's the presidents who were running for re-election in our poll starting their re-election year. What was their approval rating? Bush was okay. over 50. He- in the last, you, you heard it, that was Karnacki. That's not Rich Barris of of, uh, of the People's Pundit. That's not Trafalgar. That's not Tony Fabrizio. That is Karnacki, and that is NBC News, okay? And they, they don't even bring up the crosstabs. The independents trump up by 19 because they're a proxy for the American people. Approval by independents, I think, had a two-handle in front. It was like 27%. It's over. They know it's over. And Trump has ascended. Trump is powerful. So, Don Jr., the last 48 hours, because we have to monitor MSNBC and CNN and BBC constantly here to curate it for the audience because they don't want to waste their time. It has been an obsession on lawfare. That's all they're talking about, the immunity situation in the Supreme Court and today, because they understand it is mathematically impossible for them to defeat Donald Trump at the ballot. So now they've turned to the lawfare. It's the, it's the last redoubt they've got. Your thoughts, sir? Well, listen, it's the lawfare, it's the cheating. And, you know, make no mistake, Steve, there's nothing that they won't do, right? They've shown that over the last few years. Now, people simply understand it. You know, Joe Biden was going to be the genius elder statesman, and all we've gotten is inflation and wars. 
Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. I actually want to know who the morons in the 30 percent who actually approve of Joe Biden, because, you know, even being <laughs> an objective person, because I'm still an American citizen, I have five young kids. I want our country to be successful. I cannot think, think of a single metric, a single metric where we have improved in the last three and a half years under Joe Biden and, you know, the quote unquote adults who are back in charge. It's absolutely ridiculous what's going on. So you see it, the lawfare, the insanity. The problem is they've lost their minds because, you know, they live in their little D.C. and L.A. world and the billionaire circle. You know, people are watching these things and they're laughing about how ridiculous these lawsuits are, whether it's E. Jean Carroll, whether it's, you know, Fannie Willis and, you know, the boyfriend and the sleeping with. I mean, it's it's the perfect example of everything we've known about the Democrat Party. And so. Now that it's so egregious, now that it's so ridiculous, people are actually watching and they understand. They understand that if they can do it to Trump, and more importantly, if they will do it to Trump, they will do it to anyone. They've shown it, they're not pretending anymore, and so there is no lengths that they won't go. So I'm not saying it's over because there's, again, nothing that they won't try to do in the coming 10 months before the election to salvage the absolute failures of Joe Biden, but more importantly, the Democrat Party, because we can't let them skate on this. It's not Joe Biden. Joe Biden's incapable of finding his way off of a stage that he got on four minutes before. It's the Democrat Party. It's their radical policies. It's the, you know, China first, America last. It's open borders. It's pro-war. It never ends. And people are absolutely sick of it, Steve. Don Jr., talk a second about your father. I mean, they've got criminal charges against him for 700 years in prison. I mean, this is a guy, think about it a second, not a politician, came, beat the, uh, the Clinton apparatus, come from, greatest come from behind victory ever, um, gives us three years of peace and prosperity, m- amazing prosperity, amazing peace throughout the world, then hit with a Chinese bioweapon, still works through that. Uh, his crime is coming back from the, after they stole it to, to say again, no, we have to set this right. That crime, 700 years in prison, a Soviet trial, a show trial in New York City that the just, just you know this judge is cooking up something because he had a deadline, self-imposed deadline, 31st didn't hit it, uh, to take away the entire business empire of the Trump family and find you guys, I don't know, four or $500 million. You've got, now we're at the Supreme Court today arguing, and these, these pro-Democrat guys arguing to take him off the ballot in 30 states. And they're about to take away presidential immunity so a president can actually take the actions he needs to defend the country, take away immunity. How is your father, with everything else going on, like today he should be in, he should be in Nevada all day. It's a caucus day. This is election interference. How's your dad holding up on, with this stress that no president, including FDR, Lincoln, Washington, has ever had on them? Honestly, he's holding up well, and you know him. I mean, he's sort of a game time player, right? He does better under pressure. It's not ideal, obviously. It's not something you want to deal with, and it it's the entire purpose of what they're doing. They want to try to break you financially. They want to try to put you in jail. They'll they'll do anything they can to distract from the job that you need to be doing, which is campaigning, which is being out there, which is explaining all of this to the American people. But again, people are understanding it because you can't hide. There's no amount of assistance from even the trillion dollar institution that is mainstream media, no amount of trillion dollar influence, suppression of our side, artificial boosting of the other side from big tech that can cover up the facts. If a guy like me walks into a supermarket with their kids when we're getting something for Super Bowl weekend uh, and I'm like, man, if I have sticker shock, Steve, imagine what every hardworking American family feels. 
That's how ridiculous it is. And Joe Biden can't hide from it. So I think my, my father understands that. He understood very easily that he could have just kept his mouth shut, walked away after 2020. He would have been a legend to half the country, gone back to a really nice, easy life. He's not going to do that because he understands where all of this is headed. He understands what it means, not just for me and my siblings, but for his grandchildren. That's why he's fighting for my grandchildren, for your grandchildren, because we're about to inherit a country that no one recognizes anymore, a uni-party Marxist dystopia. That's where we're headed. And if you don't believe me, just look at all of the things that they're trying to do. The people who have been screaming fascist yada, yada, yada for the last seven years are acting awfully a lot like the proper definition of fascists. They are doing this. And there's no amount of air cover from the institutions that function as the marketing department of the radical left today that can prevent real Americans from finally understanding just how badly they've been manipulated. Don Jr., with that apparatus they've got, he's leading now, I think, with African-American men, with Hispanic men. He leads with Latinos overall by 1%. He's starting to draw close with people under 35, with people under 30, I think is virtually tied. How are all these demographics that they've used against us for decades and, and with no ability to get into the mainstream media, how are those, those demographics flipping against Biden and starting to come to Trump right now? Common sense. You know, they saw it. They see peace. The peace deals in the Middle East. That was the holy grail of geopolitical politics. Every uniparty politician has promised us they would get something done over the last 50 years. Only Trump was actually able to deliver. People see it in their wallets. They see they pay their mortgages. They see it in the grocery stores. They understand that life was better under Trump. Perhaps the only demographic that does it is like suburban women, uh, because, you know, their entire currency uh, is just virtue signaling, uh, peddling their woke nonsense, you know, uh, amongst each other at Starbucks. Uh, because they don't actually face a lot of the hardship that real Americans actually face. Uh, there's a reason there's that shift. People can't hide it any from it anymore. I actually saw it. It was interesting. I saw it the other day. I was going through an airport, and it was actually the first time. I, I saw it a lot from African-American men, but there was a group of flight attendants, four African-American ladies, that saw me go through security, and they started yelling, Trump 2024. And it was like, wait, African-American women? Like, this, this is unusual. There's a couple that come up and they talk to me and they're curious or whatever. This was the first time even they were like, no, we're voting for your dad. We got to stop this nonsense. You know, they're asking if I was flying on their flight because they wanted to talk further. It was sort of amazing. There is a seismic shift. And I'm not saying four people is indicative of anything. But when you're out there in public and people are vocally doing it, that that there was prior, you know, it was suppressed before. If you were vocal about Trump, there was a social consequence. People don't care anymore because they understand that life under Trump was better. It was better for them. It was better for their children. It was better for their grandchildren. They see the decline of our nation, of our civilization, and they understand that it's the radical leftist Marxist Democrat Party policies today that are leading us down this negative path. Uh, I, I think it's actually incredible what's going on. We're really uh, it's a 1776 type of moment right now, without question. This is why I think you're seeing this lawfare. They understand one thing. If people, we curated it and we can't, don't have enough time to play it all today. The last 48 hours, ever since the immunity ruling, this over-the-top immunity ruling that yeah. really tries to stop President Trump going on bonk to, to the appeals court, forces him immediately to the Supreme Court. 
MSNBC and CNN have virtually turned all their coverage over to how to stop Trump through lawfare. They've given up. They've quite frankly given up on trying to beat him on the, on, at the polls, trying to beat him uh, with the votes, either going to steal it or stop it by lawfare. Don Jr., you know, one of the reasons these numbers, I think, where they are, first off, as you know, Don Jr., there's no way that Biden got 81 million votes. But we'll put that aside. Zero. Zero President chance. Trump was a belo- <laughs> Zero, Zero chance. Zero chance. Let's just President be clear Trump about this belo- right now. Okay? Like, <laughs> come on. No way. We're not. We're not election deniers. We're election rationalists. There's no chance. Again. I've talked to every hedge fund guy in the world. Half of them hate Trump. Every one of them says mathematically impossible for Biden to have beaten him. Mathematically impossible. Just did not yeah, happen. There, the there's no way. But we, that's what we also still have to be prepared about the next time, though, because, you know, whatever games they're going to play, you know, they got 30 Mark Eliases out there. We, we don't have you know, we don't have anyone like that. Uh, you know, we got to be prepared for all of that stuff, because even if it's unrealistic, even if it's insane, even if it defies literally the laws of statistics, uh, they will figure out a way to play whatever games they can possibly get away with. So we just have to overwhelm it. And they know more, even more than 16 that all the chips are in the middle of the table. They understand President Trump knows exactly what the deal is. He knows exactly where the bodies are buried. And the Victoria Newlands of the world and all of her, all of her Praetorian Guard colleagues in the deep state understand it's game over the moment that President Trump takes his hand off the, the family Bible at high noon on the 20th of January, 2025. So the stakes could not be higher, highest stakes in American history. But he, the reason these numbers are where they are, he was a beloved figure before he ran and before the media starts sparing. And I think that's what you're starting to see. And one of the reasons, you know, we did the special, I think back in May down at Mar-a-Lago with the president for an hour or so on the release of the book. Tell me the book, the your publishing company running, we had an MTG on earlier who has the big hit out now with you guys. Walk me through the publishing company and particularly the book. I know we're putting a big effort on the letters uh, to President Trump, which is very moving and shows him how beloved he was by all of culture before he actually ran for president and, uh, and, and stood up to defend his country. Yeah, listen, I actually started a publishing company because I saw all these sort of voices on the conservative side that were going to the sort of usual suspects in publishing and they'd be censored. They'd be, you can't write that. Uh, or, I mean, they'd literally pay them there up front. And then all of a sudden, yeah, we're just not going to publish it. You keep your money. We're not going to let that out in the ether. The censorship isn't just happening online. It was happening at traditional publishing. So uh, with some friends, started a group called Winning Team Publishing to do exactly that. We published Carrie Lake's book. We published uh, a Marjorie Taylor Greene's book. Uh, we did books for my father that just wouldn't have gone anywhere else. Judge Janine, uh, myself, Charlie Kirk, you know, people who are true, you know, leaders in the conservative movement that just weren't able to get their voice out any other way. So we did a fun book. We found in my father's, you know, literally his, his filings over the last 30 years, uh, all these letters to him, you know, from Princess Diana, from Oprah, from Alec Baldwin, uh, all these people who, you know, you know, were either historical figures or later became haters. And it's sort of interesting to say, you know, these people didn't dislike Trump all that long ago. They were actually, they were big <laughs> fans. Uh, and so we made this book, put all these letters in there. My father had sort of handwritten commentary and or regular commentary on each one of these stories. Uh, and it's sort of amazing. Yeah, you can find it at 45books.com. And I know there's a, you get 20 bucks off if you use promo code Bannon. So you're all in on this. I, uh, I appreciate it. But yeah, check it out at 45books.com. But it, it shows you um, how contrived the world we live in actually is, how fake it all is. 
all of these haters. I mean, the, the Alec Baldwin commentary is perhaps the, the most extreme, but leaders from all over the world, people uh, that all of a sudden, magically, uh, after you know a 30-year positive relationship, you put that big R next to your name as a Republican, and all of a sudden, uh, it's easier to do it. But what we've really seen, Steve, in the last few weeks, you see you know, Snoop Dogg, who did a video of like a drive-by shooting of my father in 2017, because, <laughs> hey, that would get you on TV, that gets you some clicks, that gets you... Uh, you know, some love uh, from your record label, whatever it may be. Even he's now, uh, well, you know, listen, Trump's never done anything to me. This is, he understands where his people are going. He understands where the community uh, who buys his music uh, is going. He understands the hardships that they're going through. And so there is a big cultural shift going on right now uh, that even again, Big tech, mainstream media can't hide. They can't suppress it because it's so flagrant and it's so obvious. By the way, one of the powers of the book, Don Jr., you know this probably better than anybody, but it's one of the things that uh, being close to President Trump, it's, it's one of the great gifts. His sense of humor is absolutely okay. self-deprecating, but it's incredible. <laughs> And you see yeah. that throughout this book and some of the comments he makes in the writing. That's where it's worth it. It's a treasure. And this is something you want to keep on the uh, – it's the quality of it, the photography of it, the paper stock. This is something you put on the coffee table as a conversation item and get people to flip through it, particularly haters. If you get the haters, you'll see all of a sudden they oh, yeah, have no, a big change. Don Jr., one, one more time, where do people go? You go to 45books.com, and I know you get 20 bucks off with promo code Bannon. So uh, 45books.com. Uh, you know, we, we had a good time with it. It's just, it, it really is an interesting sort of walk down memory lane. It was very cool that he kind of kept those kind of records. And you see, you see that seismic shift. It, uh, it, it probably tells you so much of what you need to know, but you're right. It's a, it's a coffee table book, very high quality print. It's, you know, it's large, right? It's, uh, you know, eight, 18 by 18 and plus. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, no, I think people will really enjoy it. Large like the man's uh, presence. Uh, and you'll see, I think, this tectonic plate shift because people understand whether African-American men, whether Hispanic men, whether people under 35 youth, that Donald J. Trump has got their back and has been a great guy for a long time. Don Jr., thank you so much for joining us. Uh, by the way, Don Jr., your social media, I know you've been on occasion. On occasion, you've put up something that's noteworthy. How do people follow you, sir? Uh, you know, it, Donald J. Trump Jr., uh, you know, on all the usual social channels. I also got the my podcast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays at 6 p.m. Uh, on Rumble. So, you know, download that. Check it out. I go long form with a lot of people. I do a lot of Q&As, sort of ask me anything's. Uh, although tonight I'm going to go at eight o'clock because I'm going to want to see what Tucker's doing and uh, comment on that. So tonight at eight o'clock, I'll have Ken Paxton on talking about all the lawfare uh, and oh, the wow. stuff that he's one of the few attorney generals fighting back. He's also one of the guys that's uh, that the rhinos uh, in his home state in Texas tried taking him out. So, you know, a lot to talk about there. So I'll have Ken Paxton on tonight. But, yeah, the podcast is sort of great. And you can also get it on Spotify and Apple uh, podcasts. Any other time, if you're not watching Rumble or you're not on there, or if you're driving and whatever. So all the usual channels, Donald J. Trump, uh, Junior Jr. And uh, yeah, I guess I, I probably talk a lot of crap there. No, your sense of humor is pretty good, too. Not too shabby. Don Jr., thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Have a good one. The book is Deception, the Great COVID Cover-Up. I would point out, as I told Dr. Uh, Dr. Paul earlier, that 
I've read many books written by political figures, and this is not one of those. This is a compelling, serious, and I would say interesting page-turning book. Um, we are honored to have him with us today. Please join me in welcoming Senator Rand Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I travel to Washington every week from Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I live, and then I return at the end of the week. And I've been married 33 years as of last week. And I get home and I think, you know, when I knock on the door, my wife lets me in, I think, well, she'll have my slippers, maybe a hug and a kiss, <laughs> maybe a martini. And you know what I usually get when I get home? I open the door and you know what she says to me? How come Anthony Fauci's not in jail yet? <laughs> but it's not for lack of trying. I've referred him twice to the Department of Justice, but there is this guy over there um, the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, who may be the most partisan Attorney General we've had. Uh, there used to be some sense of distance between the Attorney General and Presidents in politics, but I think there is no longer. And uh, we have the proof, we'd submitted the proof. Essentially, Anthony Fauci, in his own words, has admitted the truth. He lied in Congress, which is a felony, and we have the proof. It's in his own emails, it's in his own words. But if you look back in time and you want to know when the cover-up began, when the conspiracy began, it really began January 31st of 2020. The virus had only been out a couple weeks in China. The Chinese were still saying, oh, it's not transmitted by, between humans. This was months after the virus had really erupted. We know now that the virus started uh, in the lab that the first three people sick, we actually know their names, worked in a lab in Wuhan. They worked for Dr. Xi, the one they call the great bat scientist. The first patient zero they actually think is Ben Hugh, a scientist who worked for. We know that because they declassified that in the Trump administration. They declassified that these three were sick. The x-ray findings were consistent with COVID. There wasn't a test for COVID. They had a test for the first SARS-1, the one that was the pandemic back in 2003 and 2004, but they didn't yet have a COVID test. But they had all the signs and symptoms of it. Will we ever prove they had it? Well, we could have early on in the disease if they'd come forward and admitted the truth and subjected uh, serum for antibody analysis. We could have proved that they were the first patients. But all of the evidence points to that. We know the Chinese were dishonest in their death count. All likelihood, millions of people died in China, and yet there was no real uh, accounting for that. I begin the book by talking about a young ophthalmologist, uh, Leng Wang, who um, I say reminded me of myself. I was a young ophthalmologist a few years ago, and uh, he was idealistic, and he saw the pandemic coming, and he began reporting it. But in China, if you report the truth or reveal the truth, he was arrested. Uh, he was made to go through a struggle. He was made to shame himself and admit that uh, he had been guilty of spreading gossip or guilty of spreading rumors against the state. And then he dies. We don't say how he died necessarily. He appeared to have died from, from COVID. But in his age group, the death rate's like 0.004%. So for him to die was extraordinary. If he did die from COVID, it was still extraordinary for him. 
But I recount at the beginning because this scene was so striking that as they were sealing people and entombing people in their apartments, like they did in the Middle Ages, only three years ago in China, as they were sealing people in their apartments, people just were so lonely and distraught that they were coming out on their balconies. You saw it in Italy, you saw it in different places. But the way they responded to it in China should, should send shivers up your spine. In China, they sent drones. And in the soothing voice of a woman, the woman would say, suppress your soul's desire to be free. That's how they were responding. And I think most of us can kind of believe that that's the way a totalitarian government would respond. But we think we're better. We think, gosh, our government, when we're free, we're a liberal democracy. We would certainly not react that way. But what we discovered, and what I discovered as I went through this, is that January 31st of 2020, the conspiracy began. And it began in a flurry of emails. Emails between Anthony Fauci and other virologists around the world. Emails between Anthony Fauci and a guy named Jeremy Farrar, who's sort of the Anthony Fauci of England, maybe the biggest dispenser of grants in all of Europe. The emails have a harried nature. You know how you can read emails between people and you can get a sense of that they're worried. You also get a sense that they're worried because they go on till three in the morning. They go on through midnight. His assistants are emailing Anthony Fauci and saying, hey, we see this paper, it's from Wuhan, and it's gain-of-function research, and it looks like we funded it, but it never went through the safety committee. Mysterious. Never went through the safety committee, got approved, but we, we're unsure how that could have happened. The emails have increasing uh, hairy nature. You get to midnight, and Fauci's responding to his assistant saying, there will be duties, have your cell phone on, be up early, I will have duties for you in the morning. At three in the morning, Fauci sends an email uh, to somebody named Bob Cadlick. I didn't know who that was at the time. In fact, I didn't know that for a year or two till we were well into the book, and then I met Bob Cadlick. Bob Cadlick was the head of the safety committee. But just like government is, and just like government screws up so many things, the safety committee's secret. The name of the people that are supposed to review dangerous pandemic research so we don't create a pandemic is secret. The people on the committee are secret, and so are their deliberations. I still have never seen their deliberations. But one thing I do know is only three grants were ever looked at, and none of them were the grants in Wuhan. Three grants were looked at. But the email from Fauci to Bob Cadillac at 3 in the morning says this. Hey, here's an interesting article, and it looks like it came from animals. All the evidence looks like it came from animals. Nothing to see here. Why is he doing it? He's CYA. He's covering up because he knows that he was involved with funding this. Was this an accidental thing? Was this something Anthony Fauci just made a mistake, a judgment, and well, we didn't get it reviewed? No, it's a lifelong philosophy for him because really the whole discussion and the debate over gain-of-function research, research where you take two viruses and combine the genetics of them to create something that doesn't exist in nature, that is potentially more dangerous, more lethal, or more contagious, this had been going on for a decade. It started with a, a famous research of the avian flu in the Netherlands in 2010. The avian flu, if you've ever seen when they have the reports in the news of killing of millions of chickens in, in primarily China but other places, it's very contagious among chickens, but like most animal viruses, not very contagious to humans. But when it infects humans, it kills about 50% of the humans it infects. It's a bad disease. But like most animal viruses, it's adapted for its host, for chickens, for birds, and it's very transmissible. 
So a researcher in the Netherlands said, wow, wonder if we take the avian flu and we give it some mutations, if we could make it contagious through the air to mammals. And lo and behold, he did that. But people became alarmed. They're like, wow, this is this could be a, a recipe for terrorists to create something that could you know, kill off 50% of the population. And they debated over whether to publish it because they thought it could be a roadmap for terrorism. So the debate goes back and forth. And on one side are the good guys, and there are many of them you'll learn about in the book who are scientists, who are credentialed at many of the prestigious universities, and yet they were very worried about this. On the other side, Anthony Fauci and all of his colleagues that helped him in the cover-up. And Anthony Fauci actually says in 2012, he says that even if a scientist were to become infected, even if a pandemic were to occur from gain-of-function research, that the knowledge would be worthwhile. I would venture to say that the people who lost loved ones in COVID would probably disagree with them. So this is the way this begins. They're having conversations. The emails are going on in a frantic pace. Jeremy Farrar, the Anthony Fauci of England, is having discussions with his wife. His wife remembers 17 phone calls in one evening. She remembers telling him, and she's a scientist also, she says to him, maybe you should talk to your family. Maybe you should inform your family something about this in case something happens. They're really thinking, and he never really intimates who's going to kill him or who might kill him, but they're worried that he might be killed over this knowledge. He says he bought a burner phone. They all begin trying to use various forms of email that are not responsive. We have one of Fauci's assistants saying, well, don't use your government email. It'll get FOIA. They're FOIAing me to death. Don't use your government email. That's a crime. You remember Hillary Clinton. You remember all the discussions. The executive branch has to use government email. And yet there was this idea, we're just going to go outside the boundaries of this to have these discussions. And this began in January, January 31st, February 1st. So there's a big phone call on February 1st. And in that phone call, we know the results of that because we finally got another email. We get these emails by drips and drabs over time. We get an email from Anthony Fauci of a Slack conversation, which is, I guess, a group texting mechanism. Yeah, the young people are nodding their head. I don't know what that is. <laughs> But in the summary of that email, he, he says, well, yes, we've all looked at it. So and so and so and so. All these famous virologists have looked at it. And looking at the sequence, this is not something we've seen in nature. It's really unusual. This category of coronaviruses typically don't have what's called a furin cleavage site, which is a, a site that allows them to enter into human cells well. This is just extraordinary. We think, it's just, we think it looks like it was manipulated in the lab. And this is our conclusion. And... We're very suspicious because we know in Wuhan they're doing gain-of-function research. Fast forward a year, he comes before my committee under oath, and he says the NIH has never, unequivocally, never, ever funded gain-of-function research. Now, part of the reason he can say that is they changed the definition of gain-of-function. They literally went to the website the day before the hearing and changed the definition but even that isn't enough to weasel out of this. He's like, well, uh, animal viruses can't be gain of function. They have to be human viruses. Well, what if you take two different animal viruses and you put them together and now they infect humans? You don't know this in advance. So part of his definition was can't be gain of function unless we know it's going to gain function. Well, that's what the experiment is, is to see if it gains function. That's ridiculous. 
But we do know that certain of the backbones of viruses that we're combining have 10, 20% lethality. We know that there are some viruses that labs are working on, such as Ebola, Nipah virus, Marburg virus, that have 50% mortality. We quote a scientist in here who's a 30, 40 year uh, virologist who is in the Trump administration who says that he thinks this will happen again, but he thinks next time it could be 5% or 50%. If you've ever read about the Black Plague, you've ever read about the 14th century, it's hard to imagine what happens when a third of your people die. In those days, when a third of the people die, that's loss of knowledge, loss of know-how. If we had a third of our country or a 50% of the world die, we're talking about starvation, lack of clean water, constant and chronic fighting for what's left. We're talking about a disaster. We're talking about a risk to civilization. In fact, Kevin Esfeldt is a uh, scientist who does the CRISPR technology, trying to figure out how to fix genetic disease by inserting genes. And it's a, you know, we're not against technology. There's fabulous technology that's out there. He's one doing this research, but he says that the gain of function research is a risk that civilization shouldn't take. He believes, and so do other scientists, that we should look at this the same way we look at nuclear weapons. Right now, as we sit, you could leave here and go on the internet and order DNA to make polio virus. People can order DNA off the internet, and if you know what you're doing, you can make the polio virus. And you say, well, there can't be many people who know how to do this. He's done some estimates that says he thinks it might be 60 or 70,000 people in the United States. It's not just PhD virologists. It's technicians that work in their lab. You think there's not going to be a crazy person or a terrorist who decides to monkey around with this and then release it? Now, some people ask, after researching the book, do you think the Chinese did it on purpose? I think unlikely, maybe, but I think unlikely. And the reason I think it's unlikely is you'd probably put someone on a plane and there'd be only, you know, you wouldn't have it in your country. Wuhan was hit pretty hard and there's a disease was there. We also have this evidence. We do have evidence that a Dr. Zhou Yusin, who's a general, and when you have your general next to your name, it means you're also in the People's Liberation Army. You are part of the communist apparatus. He was working on a vaccine in 2019. In fact, something mysterious happens. In February of 2020, a month after they said it wasn't transmissible and there's nothing to see here, and they just said, look the other way, they have a vaccine in China in February of 2020. Nobody believes you can get one that fast. Even an mRNA, you can't do it that fast the first time around. There's no way. Now, they do think if the virus started in November, or if you had actually created the virus and you were trying to work on a vaccine to that virus, and then the virus got out, you could have been prepared. He creates a vaccine in February of 2020. That doesn't work very well. And in April of 2020, he mysteriously either falls or is killed. He falls from a building. He either jumps or was pushed. Two months later, we know he was working on a virus. We know he was working with Dr. Xi. We know that they knew how to do this research to take a coronavirus and stick a cleavage site in it, a human cleavage site, to make it more infectious for humans. We know they were doing this. Did our government help me find out any of this information? Absolutely not. They have hid everything from the very beginning, continue to hide documents to this day, and it's a rare Democrat, except for when I bludgeon them under duress that will help me. The only ones that will ever sign any document request for me 
or when I hold up like 40 nominees and 40 pieces of legislation and I say you're not getting it and then I have to trade legislation for them to sign a document. But what we do know is this, in 2018, there was a request through DARPA. DARPA is a part of the Defense Department, the Defense Advanced Research Project, et cetera, agency. And the request was from Dr. Xi, the bat scientist in Wuhan, Dr. Ralph Barrick, scientist at UNC, who's done a lot of this work with her, and Ralph Barrick, who I call, uh, no, no, Ralph Barrick and Peter Dazak, who I call the bag man. He's the bag man that carries the money to Wuhan. They asked for research money in 2018 from DARPA to take a coronavirus and put a furin cleavage site in it, the site that allows it to get into human cells, and remarkably, we actually turned it down. We actually did the right thing and turned it down. But wouldn't that be a clue if a year later there's all of a sudden a virus going on in Wuhan that looks just like this? If you had done this project, like let's say you're Ralph Barrick and you're one of the scientists or Peter Dazak, wouldn't you immediately remember and say, oh yeah, we were going to do that with them. We, we didn't get the money. wonder if they did it. Not one of them reported this. Do you know how we know about this research project? Because a whistleblower at DARPA told us about it. And he said he looked for it in a file. He surmised that it should have been in a file and it wasn't there. He looked again six months later after I had had an altercation with Fauci and it was back in the file. He thinks they moved it initially and then moved it back into a file. I don't know if he's physically talking about an old fashioned file or a computer file, probably a computer file, but he finds it. But we only know about this from a whistleblower. They've continued to deny it to this day. But why wouldn't Ralph Barrick have told us? Why wouldn't Peter Dazak have told us? Ralph Barrick met with Fauci in the first month as the, the virus is beginning. Fauci in testimony in the Missouri versus Biden case doesn't remember Ralph Barrick. We found a video. I just love doing this stuff as we look through the book. We found him at a scientific conference where uh, Anthony Fauci does his presentation. The next guy to get up is this Ralph Barrick. Anthony Fauci sits in the front row. You can see him sit down. You see the back of his head for an hour and a half. He says he's never met the guy he doesn't remember. And then you ask him about Dr. Xi and his response is, oh, I'm not good with Asian names. Like Bill Clinton, he said about 300 times in the deposition, he didn't recall. So, you know, the gall of this. But to add on top of this, as we discover these facts, as we're trying to get it out, in the beginning, I, I wasn't, I really wasn't that involved with this. In 2020, the scientists said it came from animals. I said, oh, you know, why would those scientists lie to us? I really didn't look into this. It began 2021 as other people began writing about it, particularly Nicholas Wade, who wrote uh, just a great article that no one would publish. And he published it on medium.com himself. He's a former New York Times science writer, and yet he was being pushed out, being called a conspiracy theorist. At this time, and for about a year, Facebook suppressed any stories on the lab leak. Now, it'd be bad enough if a private company were suppressing knowledge, and we could just all be mad at Facebook and tell them to take a hike. But they're doing this in conjunction with our government. That makes them an arm of the government. And that's what they've said in Missouri versus Biden, that basically they have become an arm of the government, Twitter, Facebook. When they meet with government officials, the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, the CDC, the White House, the White House press spokesman, they're all meeting with them and saying, take it down, take it down. At one point, Twitter's taking so much stuff down 
that they say, well, we'll continue to be your censor, but we want to be paid for it. The FBI pays them three and a half million dollars for their work. I asked Christopher Ray about this this week and he doesn't recall. <laughs> he says, oh, we pay them all the time. And they do. They pay your phone company for your records, which is another story we shouldn't be allowing either. But there was a time when the left cared about this. There was a time when the left cared more than the right about this. There was a time in the 1960s when the FBI went after Martin Luther King, went after Vietnam War protesters, went after civil rights protesters, that the left was the defender. And there were people on the right says, oh, we need government to keep us safe and we're fine with a powerful FBI. And now the, the tables have been turned. I can't find anybody on the left who cares at all. I've met with one Democrat senator that would meet with me over trying to prevent the government from meeting with media to suppress constitutionally protected speech. And he rejected it saying, well, what if people say the election's been changed to Wednesday and you trick them into not voting? Shouldn't the government shut those people down who are lying about when the election is? Now, one question might be, if, you, if you're fooled by somebody telling you the election's been changed, maybe it shouldn't be competent. Maybe you're not competent enough to vote. But I shouldn't say that. But anyway, the thing is, is that even if that kind of stuff's occurring, you could argue the government could have a role in saying, no, the election hasn't been changed, and putting out public service amounts and saying, it's still on Tuesday. But you really don't need them to go take down information. But it was worse than that because it was taking down information. I said masks don't work. They don't. Even the N95 works in, in certain circumstances. If your spouse is sick, if you're 75 and you got to take care of your spouse and feed them, the N95 for short periods of time, worn properly, thrown away, is of some benefit. But I'll tell you what's not, cutting up your t-shirt and putting your favorite sports team on there. <laughs> it's actually malpractice. Since cotton masks don't work, when Anthony Fauci wears three of them with a Washington Nationals repellent emblem on there, just because they were bad, they didn't repel viruses. <laughs> but when he does that, it's actually malpractice. Because let's say you are at risk and your spouse has COVID and you've said, well, Anthony Fauci just wears a, a Washington Nationals cloth mask. I'll take care of my spouse and wear it. You're putting yourself at risk by getting the bad advice, by getting the wrong advice. And yet that's what we have. Anthony Fauci was rewarded for his service to the country. He got a million dollar prize from a nonprofit organization. His wealth went from $7 million to $11 million. He gets royalties, but he won't reveal what they're, who they're from and how much. He won't reveal who the other scientists are. I think it was 1,500 scientists got over $200 million in, in royalty grants. Wouldn't you think they'd reveal if any of them came from Pfizer or Moderna? Wouldn't you reveal it if you were on the committee? It's sort of like being on the you know, local school board and saying, well, you know, we're going to vote for new textbooks from this company. I'm not going to tell anybody I own the company. I mean, surely anybody would think you'd have to reveal that, and yet no. And so I started out really being indifferent to whether he was good or evil, anything. I just wanted to ask questions and try to get to the bottom of things. But the more we uncovered and the more we found in the book, the more we found that he was being deceptive and being deceitful. And I think there were hundreds of people involved in this. And people say, oh, now that's a conspiracy theory. When you think hundreds of people are all involved, they're involved, but they're involved in this way. And I think George Carlin put it the best. George Carlin said that you don't need a conspiracy theory where interests converge. What does he mean by that? What is the interest? If they funded it, they all want to cover up the fact that they had anything to do with funding. 
There could have been 10 different projects that were funded by 10 different groups, and there likely were. And this might have gone over 10 years. But if you were part of funding that and you're a bureaucrat, you don't have to talk to Anthony Fauci to be told you got to cover this up. You want to cover it up. Why, can't we, why couldn't we find the DARPA stuff? Why didn't any of the scientists? So it's a conspiracy involving hundreds of people, but they're not in a room rubbing their hands together like, ah, well, you know, we're going to be evil today. They're just self-interested in covering, the, covering this up. But I wrote the book because in the end, we have to do something to try to prevent this from happening again. There's a group of 33 scientists, and we outlined some of their proposals. We've had some of them come in. But there are proposals for trying to make this safe. Most of them say we should treat this like nuclear weapons. So as much as I'm for freedom, I'm really not for letting you enrich uranium. There are some rules on, <laughs> on buying you know, centrifuges, your own uranium. There are some rules, and I think those are reasonable. And I think there ought to be some rules on DNA synthesis, and we ought to, we ought to look into this. And there are certain things that we sh you know, it's our money, and we maybe shouldn't be funding stuff to create viruses that could take off or leak from a lab and kill the population. So these are things that can happen. I'm still hopeful they will. I'm disappointed often, you know, by people on the other aisle, on the other side of the aisle not caring about this. But I will tell you that there has been a success in the sense that when I first came involved in this in 2021, nobody believed it. Now, I'm not saying I'm the only one because there were many other writers. Alina Chan wrote a book, Viral, which was great. Alex Berenson wrote a book, Pandemia. Um, uh, Sherry Markson wrote a book, What Happened in Wuhan. There's a lot of good books out there. But... I think we've changed the tide of this. I mean, I think it, half the people now believe it came from the lab. I think even more. The fact that they never could find an animal that had this. No animal reservoir makes it kind of hard. And so all of the evidence is pointing that way. I think the tide has shifted. The last part of it that we have to do, so we don't have to go through this again, is we have to try to figure out how to have legislation so we can try not to be uh, funding or supporting this research, at least in our country. There's at least 12 different research areas in our research labs in our country doing this research. So this could happen here. And people say, oh, well, we're much safer. We probably are safer. We have the safest of labs and the best of intentions. But uh, I think it was Allison Young who wrote a book. She said there's been a thousand lab leaks in the last uh, decade. A thousand, that's pretty many. All it takes is one of those to be really bad to have a problem. So we do need to be very careful with this. I'm still hopeful. And we are trying very hard with the Homeland Security Committee to have an investigation and to get the Democrats on board and looking into this and try to get ultimately to bipartisan legislation. But um, I enjoyed reading the book. Uh, I want to thank Hillsdale for having me today. And I'd be happy to take a few questions. I think there's so much corruption and sort of deep state lassitude that they all need to go from top to bottom. You got to get rid of so many. 
take the NIH. He was there for 38 years. You think someone's going to be coming up the ranks that he didn't pick? You know, so I think the whole place is polluted. I think the FBI's got to be, you got to, you would need to bring somebody from outside the FBI who has honesty and integrity. When I asked Christopher Wray whether or not uh, a FISA warrant is constitutional the way a Fourth Amendment is when, with probable cause, he says, oh yeah, there's no problem. There is a problem because a FISA warrant you don't get informed of, you don't get to challenge with a lawyer, and it's probable cause that you're connected to a foreign country, not probable cause that you committed a crime. That's what's in the Constitution. And so I think you've got a clean, from, clean house from top to bottom. It won't happen unless we you know, have a different president. Um, but yeah, I think you got a clean house from top to bottom. Thank you, uh, Senator Paul, for everything you've been doing. Um, I've been a bit concerned that, for the most part, uh, a lot of people um, have started to see that there was a cover-up, but they, they're feeling uh, like they didn't like getting duped, and they just want this to go away. And so I'm very concerned uh, about the uh, public support for holding people accountable. Uh, do you think that there's hope that we're actually going to get any momentum in trying to uh, actually hold people accountable or everybody want to go back to sleep? I think it is hard, and I think people also then have sympathy. Look, Anthony Fauci is 81 years old, and, you know, he, he needs to go to the Smithsonian to see his mask. He's got his mask in the Smithsonian Institute now. Um, so I think there won't be. And actually, I don't It's not my motivating force to put him in jail. Should he have gone to jail? Yes. Would I still put him in jail? Yes. Is he going to go to jail? Probably no. But to me, it's more important that we try not to have another pandemic like this. One, if we get another pandemic, not to lock us up, not to lock us down. It didn't work. It's terrible. It was an infringement of our, of our liberties, and it's not consistent with who we are as Americans. That we should resist. The people who got the money and took the money to Wuhan should never get any more money. They finally recently said the lab is ineligible for 10 years. Peter Dayzak should be forbidden from ever getting any tax dollars again. So should Ralph Barrick, frankly. If Ralph Barrick wants to come forward and testify and let us in on what he knew, then maybe. But he was up here a couple times and he never mentioned to anybody about the 2018 research project where they wanted money to do exactly what COVID turned out to be. He was not helpful to any of us. He was meeting privately with Fauci. None of them are relaying the contents of the meetings. So really, I think he should be at the very least forbidden from getting any money. And then all the gain of function stuff needs to have great scrutiny on it and has to have the people doing the scrutiny can't be the people receiving the money. Right now, the people receiving the grants, for example, Christian Anderson, who was one of the virologists, had a $9 million grant sitting on the desk of Anthony Fauci all the spring of 2020 when he writes the paper that says, nothing to see here, had to have come from animals, everybody's a nut, you're a conspiracy theory if you think otherwise, he is approved for a $9 million grant in May of 2020. Coincidence? You decide. <laughs> I, um, you, know, you were saying when you were asking uh, Dr. Fauci about gain of function, and you asked him, have you done gain of function? And then now that they changed the definition the day before. So when you were asking him, did you define gain of function? And then if you were going to ask him again, would you define gain of function to sort of set the premise of your question? Yeah. Get, uh, get a call. 
we, we tried the best we could to define it by reading from the actual research paper that Barrick and she had done. And, you know, it involved creating a chimeric uh, virus, combining two. But here's how they play games with it. Boston University released in the last year, uh, they took a, uh, I think it was a form of the COVID virus, and they, I think they took the wild type and they mixed it with the Omicron type. So they took the wild base and they mixed and put an S protein from the Omicron on it. And instead of killing 100% of the mice, it killed 80% of the mice. And they said, oh, it's, it's didn't gain function, it lost function. But it was a thousand times more infectious. So the wild type was deadly, but not as infectious. Omicron was infectious, but not as deadly. Even if you lessen the deadliness of the first one, but made it more infection, is that not gain of function? I'm a believer that people are, uh, that subterfuge and semantics are an escape for people to, for argumentation. I think everybody here is smart enough. I think people across the country are smart enough to know if you mix two viruses together and it's a lot more contagious but a little less deadly, is that gain of function? I think most people would say it is. So I guess I'm not so worried about the definitions. I think people are smart enough to figure it out. I will be worried about it if we're writing legislation. And I think even with legislation, I'm not for legislation that just says ban gain of function. I'm for having a committee of scientists to look at each of the research to decide whether how much risk there is and how much danger. Because I'll be the first to say that I have a pretty good scientific understanding of this, but uh, when I want to uh, know more, I, I call virologists and ask them and chemists to, to help me with the, with the science of whether what I'm, my, my conclusion I'm, I think I'm coming to is, is an accurate one. But uh, I think they played games with the definition. Uh, could we have done better with it? Maybe, but I think they, they also were, they were playing games. They were, they were obfuscating the truth. Um, so um, I don't think even if we had the definitions perfect, I don't think he's going to accept it. He's just going to uh, weasel his way out of the conclusion. Hi, thanks. Uh, so I'm a 20-year I'm a veteran virologist. I've spent 18 years in NIAD in the intramural program, and I happen to be a respiratory virus uh, expert. All right, um, we are in trouble now. <laughs> yeah. so I'm glad to know that we're not all bad. I was actually in the middle of all this, actually arguing against many, many different things that went on. Um, I found that you know the problem actually is that science itself needs to change dramatically. Uh, and I think that I'm concerned, and I think, I want to know, do you have a, a plan to engage, because a lot of the big name people who put themselves out there as experts actually are not experts, and actually don't know what they're talking about. Almost everyone I saw talking about COVID had no idea what they were talking about. Right. So do you have a plan to try to find people who truly care about this and want to see change? Because I don't see anybody right. really trying. Are you, still with the, are you still with the government or not? I am, I'm still yeah. not. If you're able to, if you're able to talk to us and want to talk to us, Kelsey is here and we'll give you her card. We'd love to talk to you. I can tell you some of the names and you may recognize them. I think uh, David Relman from uh, from Stanford is a big name and has been a consultant for government. Uh, Jesse Bloom. They may not all be. Some of them are evolutionary biologists. They're all they're all strange. But these are all people who've been doubters of Anthony Fauci's position. Um, so Anthony Fauci, Christian uh, Anderson. Um, uh, Fouchier from Netherlands. There are all the big practitioners and proponents of it. 
But on the other side, uh, Richard E. Bright, uh, there's been a whole group of people on the other side. And the interesting thing that I learned from this is the debate was going on 10 years before this. There had barely been a big scientific debate. And you have to worry, and always your ears should perk up when people say there's a consensus. Uh, I'm sure this scientist would probably tell you that they argue all the time. And you have to prove your point with an experiment, and then somebody comes along, they put an experiment out to try to disprove you. But if you think there's a consensus, and we're going to stop, there was a consensus. The sun goes around the earth. Now, it took dissent. It took people brave enough to stand up to government to, to get beyond that. But anyway, we'd love to hear from you if you have any particular insight into the world. And one of the things I'm interested in that we really do not have the documents on is the Wuhan research never went to the P3CO committee, the pandemic committee that Bob Cadillac was in charge. He never saw it. But Anthony Fauci says dozens of people looked at the research and told him it wasn't gain of function. I think there is a gain of function committee within it. We, we still to this day don't have any of those deliberations or any of the discussion over what went on with the Wuhan research. If someone could help point us in the direction of what's the specific name of the specific report we need to ask for, we still may not get it, but it helps us in trying to figure it out. I believe there will be documents somewhere where someone signed a document saying this one's okay, that the Wuhan research was okay. Somebody, I think, at some point signed off on that. Most things, I think, ultimately had Anthony Fauci's signature on them. They'd rise all the way to the top through different committees. I don't know if every research grant has that, but that's what we'd like to see is who made the decisions and what were their deliberations? What were the arguments back and forth? Another possibility is they skipped all the steps and there really wasn't any discussion at all and it just sort of got pushed through because they're for all of this stuff. But uh, anyway, we'd, be, we'd love to hear from you if you'll t- call us. Uh, maybe one or two more. Senator Paul, thank you for being here. I, in July 2021, I had a cocktail party at my home in Virginia. Two of the attendees, one was a microbiologist and the other one was a PhD biologist. And they didn't know each other, but they met each other at my party and they found that they had uncovered the same research, and they came to me and said, Paul, you've been in media for 50 years. Can you help us get this information out? And it's that the NIH, if you go onto their website and you type in COVID-19, it comes up with the DNA strand. Copy that, go over to the patent office, and paste that into their search engine, and it was patented by Moderna. Yeah, there, there is this argument we look at a little bit because there was a contract signed by Moderna with the NIH in December of 2019. And some people say, well, that points towards uh, that they already, they already knew the virus and everything. I think what they were, and this is what Moderna explains, and I, I think I accept their, their explanation on this, is that they were trying to develop an mRNA vaccine for a pan-coronavirus, for a coronavirus that represents a lot of different strains to see if they can get an immune response to all coronavirus. It'd be the the cure for all coronavirus, basically, for another SARS. And they were trying to create this, and they did have a contract, but I don't think it was the, I, I, I don't think there's any evidence that I've seen that it actually was, and I think it'd be RNA, but I don't think there was an RNA sequence that is COVID-19 that we have from 2019. That would be huge. I think they were, they had a contract to make a vaccine and people then say, oh, look, they already knew before. I do think the Chinese knew and I do think the Chinese had uh, COVID-19. And people say, well, it didn't show up in any of their research and it wasn't a well-known thing. There were hundreds of viruses that uh, Dr. Xi had that she never revealed. She also took down the website that used to list all of the uh, RNA or DNA sequences. That was taken down. 
There's also satellite pictures that show the hospitals full of cars, unusually full of cars in November. There's also cell phone data, and some of this is, it wouldn't even classify this, some private company had this cell phone data. You look at the Wuhan Institute, and for a week in October, there's no cell phone traffic. So if somebody were measuring us in here, they'd measure like 50 to 75 cell phones in this room right now. Apparently they can do that, which is a little bit scary. But if you had a lab leak in here and we were cleaning the place out, all of a sudden there'd be no cell phones. They know there's so much evidence sort of pointing towards something happening in the fall. And then you have the workers getting sick. But I, I don't think that, uh, that Moderna had the virus or things. Do I think that they have promoted a vaccine without being honest about its uh, side effects for young people? Yes, I don't think they've been forthcoming. President came and talked to me privately of Moderna and he admitted readily that young males do get myocarditis from this vaccine. And then in public, the CEO acted as if it wasn't true. And that more kids were getting myocarditis from the disease than the vaccine, which isn't true. Um, so I do think they've been dishonest. It bugs the heck out of me that you have people on the committees and we don't know who they are. But it's even worse than that. The FDA, when they approved the booster vaccine, the FDA committee of scientists, which are all pro-vaccine, they're not right-wing people, they're not people who hate vaccines, they're pro-vaccine, and they're also fine with mandates, most of them. They voted, the committee voted, to only give the booster to 65 and older. Two vaccines, they were fine with everybody, but the booster to only 65 and older. Goes to the CDC committee. Once again, vaccine scientists, all pro-vaccine, all pro-mandates, they vote the same way. We're only going to give the booster to over 65. How did it get to six months where it is now? Six months and older? It went to Rochelle Walensky, a political appointee. She reversed both science committees. So they accused the right of being, oh, you're anti-science. No, they, they ignored their own scientific communities. Paul Offit, who was on these committees, who once again is an esteemed scientist from Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, he said he wouldn't give the vaccine to his 24-year-old kid. He said the risk of COVID were much less, and they're both small, but the risk of COVID for your 24-year-old are almost zero, just almost zero. And the risk of the vaccine of getting myocarditis, five or six chances in 15,000. So still small, but who wants to give their healthy kids something that could cause a heart problem when the disease is not deadly for children? Maybe one more. I'll, I'll, actually, I'll ask a last okay. question for you, Senator. Um, uh, what have you learned from this? You've been intensely involved in it. You've now been in the Senate for a while. You've seen the rise of modern government. What do we conclude from this? Not just this example, but what, what larger uh, conclusions have you drawn from this about how we should think about our government and the administrative state and what's what's going on around us? Is this a, is this a, is this an outlier? Is this an exception, or is there something deeper? So if I tell you, you this, this is just between me and you, <laughs> uh, that there is a deep state, but I don't mean that in any kind of shadowy way. That the deep state, and this is what the left wing media never get about people who say it's a deep state. The deep state is just people who are self-interested that are part of the bureaucratic part of, of government, and there's just lots of them, but the elected people come and go, and the apparatus of government, the bureaucratic state of government is there and strong, and it really does have a self, it's sort of like a multicellular organism. It has its own sort of life of its own, and it's to protect their turf, basically. But their turf isn't the same as if you are an American citizen who wants to protect your liberty and the Declaration of Independence and your constitutional rights. 
it's different. And so we really need, one of the proposals I have in the book is to take Anthony Fauci's position and divide it into three. Not that I think we're going to all of a sudden get angels in, in the elected government or the bureaucracy, but, but dividing it in three divides the power. And then I'd put term limits on the office, and then I would make it vote. We would have to approve it by the Senate. All those would be things to make it better. It, it's the same thing as anything. Any power we have in Washington, whether it's uh, overseeing research or dangerous research or any power, the more you divide it, the better. The more you localize it, the better. The more checks and balances you have, the better. Uh, because I believe strongly, as Madison said, you know, if men were angels, we wouldn't need any of this. Men and women are not angels. We need as much regulation on the people and their power as we possibly can put in place. Thank you.